Alright everyone, hey, how are you doing? Hope everyone's doing well out there. This is Black Clock Audio Tales, and we are here to tell you ghost stories, spooky stories, folklore, gothic horror, weird fiction, and more. So, how are you doing? Uh, we are in week three of Poe, the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, and as always, Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by FoundItemClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm with bunny slippers. They've got those Dino Sound slippers. They've got soft plush uppers and firm foam bottoms that grip and don't slip. Make Dino Sounds every three steps. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't lose your feet to frostbite. And eat vitamin C or you'll get scurvy. And listen to PGTTCM, our Cthulhu show that is the end of the month, every month. This month, we're going to have some Ken Height. We're going to have some Scott Glancy. Maybe we'll have some Andrew Migliori. I don't know. We'll probably have some David Heath. And of course, we'll have me, your host, D.B. Spitzer. Thank you again so much for listening to People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Dave's Corner of this Podcast. Articulate warbling, and sooner than later, Dave's underground goat shenanigans. All produced through Badger Strip Studio here in glorious Portland, Oregon. Give us five stars if you like the show. Let us know, give us a review, or you can always donate money through some sort of patron scheme through podbean.com. Go to pgttcm.podbean.com. Click the donate button and learn how, or go to pgttcm.com and learn how to be a patron by clicking on the patron button. We're on social media, Facebook, MySpace, no, we're not on MySpace, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Facebook and Instagram mostly is where you're going to get the cool, fresh news, and Twitter if you just kind of want like a little repeater of the RSS feed. Thank you again so much, and here we go with Edgar Allan Poe, Week 3, Book 3, The Raven Works Collection, Collected, Collection, Collected, Edgar Allan Poe. Stephanie Heinrichs, The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Narrative of A. Gordon Pym, Chapter 12. I had for some time past dwelled upon the prospect of our being reduced to this last horrible extremity, and had secretly made up my mind to suffer death in any shape or under any circumstances, rather than resort to such a course. Nor was this resolution in any degree weakened by the present intensity of hunger under which I laboured. The proposition had not been heard by either Peters or Augustus. I therefore took Parker's side, and mentally praying to God for power to dissuade him from the horrible purpose he entertained, I expostulated with him for a long time, and in the most supplicating manner, begging him in the name of every thing which he held sacred, and urging him by every species of argument which the extremity of the case suggested, to abandon the idea, and not to mention it to either of the other two. He heard all I said without attempting to controvert any of my arguments, and I had begun to hope that he would be prevailed upon to do as I desired. But when I had ceased speaking, he said that he knew very well all I had said was true, 
and that to resort to such a course was the most horrible alternative which could enter into the mind of man but that he had now held out as long as human nature could be sustained that it was unnecessary for all to perish when by the death of one it was possible and even probable that the rest might be finally preserved adding that i might save myself the trouble of trying to turn him from his purpose his mind having been thoroughly made up on the subject even before the appearance of the ship and that only her heaving inside had prevented him from mentioning his intention at an earlier period i now begged him if he would not be prevailed upon to abandon his design at least to defer it for another day when some vessel might come to our relief again reiterating every argument i could devise and which i thought likely to have influence with one of his rough nature he said in reply that he had not spoken until the very last possible moment that he could exist no longer without sustenance of some kind and that therefore in another day his suggestion would be too late as regarded himself at least finding that he was not to be moved by anything i could say in a mild tone i now assumed a different demeanour and told him that he must be aware i had suffered less than any of us from our calamities that my health and strength consequently were at that moment far better than his own or than that of either of peter's or augustus in short that i was in a condition to have my own way by force if i found it necessary and that if he attempted in any manner to acquaint the others with his bloody and cannibal designs i would not hesitate to throw him into the sea upon this he immediately seized me by the throat and drawing a knife made several ineffectual efforts to stab me in the stomach an atrocity which his excessive debility alone prevented him from accomplishing in the meantime being roused to a high pitch of anger i forced him to the vessel's side with a full intention of throwing him overboard he was saved from his fate however by the interference of peters who now approached and separated us asking the cause of the disturbance this parker told before i could find means in any manner to prevent him the effect of his words was even more terrible than what i had anticipated both augustus and peters who it seems had long secretly entertained the same fearful idea which parker had been merely the first to broach joined with him in his design and insisted upon its immediately being carried into effect i had calculated that one at least of the two former would be found still possessed of sufficient strength of mind to side with myself in resisting any attempt to execute so dreadful a purpose and with the aid of either one of them i had no fear of being able to prevent its accomplishment being disappointed in this expectation it became absolutely necessary that i should attend to my own safety as a further resistance on my part might possibly be considered by men in their frightful condition a sufficient excuse for refusing me fair play in the tragedy that i knew would speedily be enacted i now told them i was willing to submit to the proposal merely requesting a delay of about one hour in order that the fog which had gathered around us might have an opportunity of lifting when it was possible that the ship we had seen might be again in sight after great difficulty i obtained from them a promise to wait thus long and as i had anticipated a breeze rapidly coming in the fog lifted before the hour had expired when 
no vessel appearing in sight, we prepare to draw lots. It is with extreme reluctance that I dwell upon the appalling scene which ensued, a scene which, with its minutest details, no after-events have been able to efface in the slightest degree from my memory, and whose stern recollection will embitter every future moment of my existence. Let me run over this portion of my narrative with as much haste as the nature of the events to be spoken of will permit. The only method we could devise for the terrific lottery in which we were to take each a chance was that of drawing straws. Small splinters of wood were made to answer our purpose, and it was agreed that I should be the holder. I retired to one end of the hulk, while my poor companions silently took up their station in the other with their backs turned toward me. The bitterest anxiety which I endured at any period of this fearful drama was while I occupied myself in the arrangement of the lots. There are few conditions into which man can possibly fall where he will not feel a deep interest in the preservation of his existence, an interest momentarily increasing with the frailness of the tenure by which that existence may be held. But now that silent, definite, and stern nature of the business in which I was engaged so different from the tumultuous dangers of the storm or the gradually approaching horrors of famine allowed me to reflect on the few chances i had of escaping the most appalling of deaths a death for the most appalling of purposes every particle of that energy which had so long buoyed me up deported like feathers before the wind leaving me a helpless prey to the most abject and pitiable terror I could not at first even summon up sufficient strength to tear and fit together the small splinters of wood, my fingers absolutely refusing their office, and my knees knocking violently against each other. My mind ran over rapidly a thousand absurd projects by which to avoid becoming a partner in the awful speculation. I thought of falling on my knees to my companions and entreating them to let me escape this necessity of suddenly rushing upon them and, by putting one of them to death, of rendering the decision by lot useless. In short, of everything but of going through with the matter I had in hand. At last, after wasting a long time in this imbecile conduct, I was recalled to my senses by the voice of Parker, who urged me to relieve them at once from the terrible anxiety they were enduring. Even then I could not bring myself to arrange the splinters upon the spot, but thought over every species of finesse by which I could trick some one of my fellow sufferers to draw the short straw, as it had been agreed that whoever drew the shortest of four splinters from my hand was to die for the preservation of the rest. Before any one condemn me for this apparent heartlessness, let him be placed in a situation precisely similar to my own. At length delay was no longer possible, and with a heart almost bursting from my bosom, I advanced to the region of the forecastle where my companions were awaiting me. I held out my hand with the splinters, and Peters immediately drew. He was free. His, at least, was not the shortest, and there was now another chance against my escape. I summoned up all my strength and passed the lots to Augustus. He also drew immediately, and he also was free, and now, whether I should live or die, the chances were no more than precisely even. 
at this moment all the fierceness of the tiger possessed my bosom and i felt toward my poor fellow-creature parker the most intense the most diabolical hatred but the feeling did not last and at length with a convulsive shudder and closed eyes i held out the two remaining splinters toward him it was fully five minutes before he could summon resolution to draw during which period of heart-running suspense i never once opened my eyes presently one of the two lots was quickly drawn from my hand the decision was then over yet i knew not whether it was for me or against me no one spoke and still i dared not satisfy myself by looking at the splinter i held peters at length took me by the hand and i forced myself to look up when i immediately saw by the countenance of parker that i was safe and that he it was who had been doomed to suffer gasping for breath i fell senseless to the deck i recovered from my swoon in time to behold the consummation of the tragedy in the death of him who had been chiefly instrumental in bringing it about he made no resistance whatever and was stabbed in the back by peters when he fell instantly dead i must not dwell upon the fearful repast which immediately ensued such things may be imagined but words have no power to impress the mind with the exquisite horror of their reality let it suffice to say that having in some measure appeased the raging thirst which consumed us by the blood of the victim and having by common consent taken off the hands feet and hat throwing them together with the entrails into the sea we devoured the rest of the body piecemeal during the four ever memorable days of the seventeenth eighteenth nineteenth and twentieth of the month on the nineteenth there coming on a smart shower which lasted fifteen or twenty minutes we contrived to catch some water by means of a sheet which had been fished up from the cabin by our drag just after the gale the quantity we took in all did not amount to more than half a gallon but even the scanty allowance supplied us with comparative strength and hope on the twenty-first we were again reduced to the last necessity the weather still remained warm and pleasant with occasional fogs and light breezes most usually from north to west on the twenty-second as we were sitting close huddled together gloomily revolving over our lamentable condition there flashed through my mind all at once an idea which inspired me with a bright gleam of hope i remembered that when the foremast had been cut away peters being the windward chains passed one of the axes into my hand requesting me to put it if possible in a place of security and that a few minutes before the last heavy sea struck the brig and filled her i had taken this axe into the forecastle and laid it in one of the larboard berths i now thought it possible that by getting at this axe we might cut through the deck over the storeroom and thus readily supply ourselves with provisions when i communicated this object to my companions they uttered a feeble shout of joy and we all proceeded forthwith to the forecastle the difficulty of descending here was greater than that of going down in the cabin the opening being much smaller for it will be remembered that the whole framework about the cabin companion hatch had been carried away whereas the forecastle way being a simple hatch of only about three feet square had remained uninjured i did not hesitate however to attempt the descent and rope being fastened round my body as before i plunged boldly in feet foremost 
made my way quickly to the berth, and at the first attempt brought up the axe. It was hailed with the most ecstatic joy and triumph, and the ease with which it had been obtained was regarded as an omen of our ultimate preservation. We now commenced cutting at the deck with all the energy of rekindled hope, Peters and myself taking the axe by turns, Augustus's wounded arm not permitting him to aid us in any degree. As we were still so feeble as to be scarcely able to stand unsupported, and could consequently work but a minute or two without resting, it soon became evident that many long hours would be necessary to accomplish our task, that is, to cut an opening sufficiently large to admit of a free access to the storeroom. This consideration, however, did not discourage us, and, working all night by the light of the moon, we succeeded in effecting our purpose by daybreak on the morning of the 23rd. Peters now volunteered to go down, and having made all arrangements as before, he descended and soon returned bringing up with him a small jar, which to our great joy proved to be full of olives. Having shared these among us, and devoured them with the greatest avidity, we proceeded to let him down again. This time he succeeded beyond our utmost expectations, returning instantly with a large ham and a bottle of Madeira wine. Of the latter we each took a moderate sup, having learned by experience the pernicious consequences of indulging too freely. The ham, except about two pounds near the bone, was not in a condition to be eaten, having been entirely spoiled by the salt water. The sound part was divided among us. Peters and Augustus, not being able to restrain their appetite, swallowed theirs upon the instant. But I was more cautious, and ate but a small portion of mine dreading the thirst which I knew would ensue. We now rested a while from our labors, which had been intolerably severe. By noon, feeling somewhat strengthened and refreshed, we again renewed our attempt at getting up provisions, Peters and myself going down alternately, and always with more or less success, until sundown. During this interval, we had the good fortune to bring up, altogether, four more small jars of olives, another ham, a carboy containing nearly three gallons of excellent Cape Madeira wine, and what gave us still more delight, a small tortoise of the Gallipico breed, several of which had been taken on board by Captain Bernard, as the Grampus was leaving port from the schooner Mary Pitts, just returned from a sailing voyage in the Pacific. In a subsequent portion of this narrative I shall have frequent occasion to mention this species of tortoise, it is found principally, as most of my readers may know, in the group of islands called the Gallipagos, which indeed derive their name from the animal, the Spanish word Gallipago meaning a freshwater terrapin. From the peculiarity of their shape and action they have been sometimes called the elephant tortoise. They are frequently found of an enormous size. I have myself seen several which would weigh from twelve to fifteen hundred pounds, although I do not remember that any navigator speaks of having seen them weighing more than eight hundred. Their appearance is singular and even disgusting. Their steps are very slow, measured, and heavy, their bodies being carried about a foot from the ground. Their neck is long and exceedingly slender, from eighteen inches to two feet is a very common length, and I killed one where the distance from the shoulder to the extremity of the head was no less than three feet ten inches. The head has a striking resemblance to that of a serpent. They can exist without food for an almost incredible length of time, 
instances having been known where they have been thrown into the hold of a vessel and lain two years without nourishment of any kind, being as fat and in every respect in as good order at the expiration of the time as when they were first put in. In one particular these extraordinary animals bear resemblance to the dromedary or camel of the desert. In a bag at the root of the neck they carry with them a constant supply of water. In some instances, upon killing them after a full year's deprivation of all nourishment, as much as three gallons of perfectly sweet and fresh water have been found in their bags. Their food is chiefly wild parsley and celery, with purslane, sea kelp and prickly pears, upon which latter vegetable they thrive wonderfully, a great quantity of it being usually found on the hillsides near the shore, wherever the animal itself is discovered. They are excellent and highly nutritious food, and have no doubt been the means of preserving the lives of thousands of seamen employed in the whale-fishery and other pursuits in the Pacific. The one which we had the good fortune to bring up from the storeroom was not of a large size, weighing probably sixty-five or seventy pounds. It was a female and in excellent condition, being exceedingly fat, and having more than a quart of limpid and sweet water in its bag. This was indeed a treasure, and falling on our knees with one accord, we returned fervent thanks to God for so seasonable a relief. We had great difficulty in getting the animal up through the opening, as its struggles were fierce and its strength prodigious. It was upon the point of making its escape from Peter's grasp and slipping back into the water when Augustus, throwing a rope with a slipknot around its throat, held it up in this manner until I jumped into the hole by the side of Peters and assisted him in lifting it out. The water we drew carefully from the bag into the jug, which it will be remembered had been brought up before from the cabin. Having done this, we broke off the neck of a bottle so as to form, with a cork, a kind of glass, holding not quite half a gill. We then each drank one of these measures full, and resolved to limit ourselves to this quantity per day as long as it should hold out. During the last two or three days, the weather having been dry and pleasant, the bedding we had obtained from the cabin, as well as our clothing, had become thoroughly dry, so that we passed this night, that of the twenty-third, in comparative comfort, enjoying a tranquil repose after having supped plentifully on olives and ham with a small allowance of the wine. Being afraid of losing some of our stores overboard during the night, in the event of a breeze springing up, we secured them as well as possible with cordage to the fragments of the windlass. Our tortoise, which we were anxious to preserve alive as long as we could, we threw on its back and otherwise carefully fastened. End of section 12 Recording by Stephanie Heinrichs Recording by Gaby Cowan The Works of Edgar Allan Poe Revenge Edition Volume 3 by Edgar Allan Poe Narrative of A. Cordon Pym Chapter 13 July 24 This morning saw us wonderfully recruited in spirits and strength. Notwithstanding the perilous situation in which we were still placed, ignorant of our position, 
although certainly at a great distance from land, without more food than would last us for a fortnight even with great care, almost entirely without water, and floating about at the mercy of every wind and wave on the nearest wreck in the world. Still the infinitely more terrible distresses and dangers from which we had so lately and so providentially been delivered caused us to regard what we now endured as but little more than an ordinary evil, so strictly comparative is either good or ill. At sunrise we were preparing to renew our attempts at getting up something from the storeroom, when a smart shower coming on with some lightning, we turned our attention to the catching of water by means of the sheet that we had used before for this purpose. We had no other means of collecting the rain than by holding the sheet spread out with one of the four chain plates in the middle of it. The water thus conducted to the center was drained through into our jug. We had nearly filled it in this manner when a heavy squall coming on from the northward obliged us to desist. As the hulk began once more to roll so violently that we could no longer keep our feet, we now went forward and lashing ourselves securely to the remnant of the windlass as before, awaited the event with far more calmness than could have been anticipated or would have been imagined possible under the circumstances. At noon the wind had freshened into a two-reef breeze, and by night into a stiff gale, accompanied with a tremendously heavy swell. Experience having taught us, however, the best method of arranging our lashings, we weathered this dreary night in tolerable security. Although thoroughly drenched at almost every instant by the sea, and in momentary dread of being washed off, fortunately the weather was so warm as to render the water rather grateful than otherwise. July 25. This morning the gale had diminished to a mere ten-knot breeze, and the sea had gone down with it so considerably that we were able to keep ourselves dry upon the deck. To our great grief, however, we found that two jars of our olives as well as the whole of our ham had been washed overboard, in spite of the careful manner in which they had been fastened. We determined not to kill the tortoise as yet, and contented ourselves for the present with a breakfast on a few of the olives and a measure of water each, which latter we mix half and half with the wine. Finding great relief and strength from the mixture without the distressing intoxication which had ensued upon drinking the port, the sea was still far too rough for the renewal of our efforts at getting off provision from the storeroom. Several articles of no importance to us in our present situation floated up through the opening during the day and were immediately washed overboard. We also now observed that the hulk lay more along than ever, 
so that we could not stand an instant without lashing ourselves on this account we passed a gloomy and uncomfortable day at noon the sun appeared to be nearly vertical and we had no doubt that we had been driven down by the long succession of northward and northwesterly winds into the near vicinity of the equator toward evening we saw several sharks and were somewhat alarmed by the audacious manner in which an enormously large one approached us at one time a lurch throwing the deck very far beneath the water the monster actually swam in upon us floundering for some moments just over the companion hatch and striking peters violently with his tail a heavy sea at length hurled him overboard much to our relief in moderate weather we might have easily captured him july twenty sixth this morning the wind having greatly abated and the sea not being very rough we determined to renew our exertions in the storeroom after a great deal of hard labor during the whole day we found that nothing further was to be expected from this quarter the partitions of the room having been stove during the night and its contents swapped into the hold this discovery as may be supposed filled us with despair july twenty seven the sea nearly smooth with a light wind and still from the northward and westward the sun coming out hotly in the afternoon we occupied ourselves in drying our clothes found great relief from thirst and much comfort otherwise by bathing in the sea in this however we were forced to use great caution being afraid of sharks several of which were seen swimming around the brig during the day july twenty eighth good weather still the brig now began to lie along so alarmingly that we feared she would eventually roll bottom up prepared ourselves as well as we could for this emergency lashing our tortoise water jug and two remaining jars of olives as far as possible over to the windward placing them outside the hull below the main chains the sea very smooth all day with little or no wind july twenty nine a continuance of the same weather augustus wounded arm began to evince symptoms of mortification he complained of drowsiness and excessive thirst but no acute pain nothing could be done for his relief beyond rubbing his wounds with a little of the vinegar from the olives and from this no benefit seemed to be experienced we did everything in our power for his comfort and trebled his allowance of water july thirtieth an excessively hot day with no wind an enormous shark kept close by the hulk during the whole of the forenoon we made several unsuccessful attempts to capture him by means of a noose augustus much worse and evidently sinking as much from want of proper nourishment as from the effect of his wounds 
he constantly prayed to be relieved from his sufferings, wishing for nothing but death. This evening we ate the last of our olives and found the water in our jug so putrid that we could not swallow it at all without the addition of wine, determined to kill our tortoise in the morning. July 31st After a night of excessive anxiety and fatigue, owing to the position of the hulk, we set about killing and cutting up our tortoise. He proved to be much smaller than we had supposed, although in good condition. The whole meat about him not amounting to more than ten pounds. With a view of preserving a portion of this as long as possible, we cut it into fine pieces and filled with them our three remaining olive jars and the wine bottle, all of which had been kept, pouring in afterward the vinegar from the olives. In this manner we put away about three pounds of the tortoise, intending not to touch it until we had consumed the rest. We concluded to restrict ourselves to about four ounces of meat per day. The whole good toss lasts us thirteen days. A brisk shower with severe thunder and lightning came on about dusk, but lasted so short a time that we only succeeded in catching about half a pint of water. The whole of this, by common consent, was given to Augustus, who now appeared to be in the last extremity. He drank the water from the sheet as we caught it, we holding it above him as he lay so as to let it run into his mouth, for we had now nothing left capable of holding water unless we had chosen to empty our wine from the carboy or the stale water from the jug. Either of these expedients would have been resorted to had the shower lasted. The sufferer seemed to derive but little benefit from the draught. His arm was completely black from the wrist to the shoulder, and his feet were like ice. We expected every moment to see him breathe his last. He was frightfully emaciated, so much so that, although he weighed a hundred and twenty-seven pounds upon his living and took it, he now did not weigh more than forty or fifty at the farthest. His eyes were sunk far in his head, being scarcely perceptible, and the skin of his cheeks hung so loosely as to prevent his masticating any food or even swallowing any liquid without great difficulty. August 1st A continuance of the same calm weather with an oppressively hot sun. Suffered exceedingly from thirst, the water in the jug being absolutely putrid and swarming with vermin. We contrived nevertheless to swallow a portion of it by mixing it with wine. Our thirst, however, was but little abated. We found more relief by bathing in the sea, but could not avail ourselves of this expedient except at long intervals, on account of the continual presence of sharks. We now saw clearly that Augustus could not be saved, that he was evidently dying. We could do nothing to relieve his sufferings, which appeared to be great. 
about twelve o'clock he expired in strong convulsions and without having spoken for several hours his death filled us with the most gloomy forebodings and had so great an effect upon our spirits that we sat motionless by the corpse during the whole day and never addressed each other except in a whisper it was not until some time after dark that we took courage to get up and throw the body overboard it was then loathsome beyond expression and so far decayed that as peters attempted to lift it an entire leg came off in his grasp. As the mass of putrefaction slipped over the vessel's side into the water, the glare of phosphoric light with which it was surrounded plainly discovered to us seven or eight large sharks, the clashing of whose horrible feet, as their prey was torn to pieces among them, might have been heard at the distance of a mile. We shrunk within ourselves in the extremity of horror at the sound. August 2nd The same fearfully calm and hot weather. The dawn found us in a state of pitiable dejection as well as bodily exhaustion. The water in the jug was now absolutely useless, being a thick gelatinous mass nothing but frightful-looking worms mingled with the slime we threw it out and washed the jug well in the sea afterward pouring a little vinegar in it from our bottles of pickled tortoise our thirst could now scarcely be endured and we tried in vain to relieve it by wine which seemed only to add fuel to the flame and excited us to a high degree of intoxication we afterward endeavored to relieve our sufferings by mixing the wine with sea water but this instantly brought about the most violent wretchings so that we never again attempted it during the whole day we anxiously sought an opportunity of bathing but to no purpose for the hulk was now entirely besieged on all sides with sharks no doubt the identical monsters who had devoured our poor companion on the evening before and who were in momentary expectation of another similar feast this circumstance occasioned us the most bitter regret and filled us with the most depressing and melancholy forebodings we had experienced indescribable relief in bathing and to have this resource cut off in so frightful a manner was more than we could bear nor indeed were we altogether free from the apprehension of immediate danger for the least slip or false movement would have thrown us at once within reach of those voracious fish who frequently thrust themselves directly upon us swimming up to leeward no shouts or exertion on our part seemed to alarm them even when one of the largest was struck with an axe by peters and much wounded he persisted in his attempts to push in where we were a cloud came up at dusk but to our extreme anguish passed over without discharging itself it is quite impossible to conceive our sufferings from thirst at this period we passed a sleepless night both on this account and through dread of the sharks august third 
no prospect of relief, and the brig lying still more and more along, so that now we could not maintain a footing upon deck at all. Busied ourselves in securing our wine and tortoise meat, so that we might not lose them in the event of our rolling over. Got out two stout spikes from the four chains, and by means of the axe drove them into the hole to windward within a couple of feet of the water. This not being very far from the keel, as we were nearly upon our beam ends. To these spikes we now lashed our provisions, as being more secure than their former positions beneath the chains. Suffered great agony from thirst during the whole day, no chance of bathing on account of the sharks, which never left us for a moment. Found it impossible to sleep. August 4th. A little before daybreak we perceived that the hulk was healing over, and aroused ourselves to prevent being thrown off by the movement. At first the roll was slow and gradual, and we contrived to clamber over to windward very well, having taken the precaution to leave ropes hanging from the spikes we had driven in for the provision. But we had not calculated sufficiently upon the acceleration of the impetus, for presently the hill became too violent to allow of our keeping pace with it, and before either of us knew what was to happen, we found ourselves hurled furiously into the sea, and struggling several phantoms beneath the surface with a huge hole immediately above us. In going under the water I had been obliged to let go my hold upon the rope, and finding that I was completely beneath the vessel, and my strength nearly exhausted, I scarcely made a struggle for life, and resigned myself in a few seconds to die. But here again I was deceived, not having taken into consideration the natural rebound of the hull to windward. The whirl of the water upward which the vessel occasioned in rolling partially back, brought me to the surface still more violently than I had been plunged beneath. Upon coming up I found myself about twenty yards from the hulk, as near as I could judge. She was lying keel up, rocking furiously from side to side, and the sea in all directions around was much agitated and full of strong whirlpools. I could see nothing of Peters. An oil cask was floating within a few feet of me, and various other articles from the brig were scattered about. My principal terror was now on account of the sharks, which I knew to be in my vicinity. In order to deter these, if possible, from approaching me, I splashed the water vigorously with both hands and feet as I swam towards the hull, creating a body of foam. I have no doubt that to this expedient, simply as it was, I was indebted for my preservation, for the sea all around the brig, just before her rolling over, was so crowded with these monsters, that I must have been, and I really was, in actual contact with some of them during my progress. By great good fortune, however, I reached the side of the vessel in safety, although so utterly weakened by the violent exertion I had used that I should never have been able to get upon it 
but for the timely assistance of Peters, who now, to my great joy, made his appearance, having scrambled up to the keel from the opposite side of the hull, and threw me the end of the rope, one of those which had been attached to the spikes. Having barely escaped this danger, our attention was now directed to the dreadful imminency of another, that of absolute starvation. Our whole stock of provision had been swept overboard in spite of all our care in securing it, and seeing no longer the remotest possibility of obtaining more, we gave way both of us to despair, weeping aloud like children and neither of us attempting to offer consolation to the other. Such weakness can scarcely be conceived, and to those who have never been similarly situated will, no doubt, appear unnatural. But it must be remembered that our intellects were so entirely disordered by the long course of privation and terror to which we had been subjected that we could not justly be considered at that period in the light of rational beings, in subsequent perils, nearly as great, if not greater, I bore up with fortitude against all the evils of my situation and Peter's. It will be seen evinced a stoical philosophy nearly as incredible as his present childlike supineness and imbecility. The mental condition made the difference. The overturning of the brig, even with the consequent loss of the wine and turtle, could not, in fact, have rendered our situation more deplorable than before, except for the disappearance of the bedclothes by which we had been hitherto enabled to catch rainwater, and of the jug in which we had kept it when caught. For we found the whole bottom, from within two or three feet of the bends as far as the keel, together with the keel itself, thickly covered with large barnacles, which proved to be excellent and highly nutritious food. Thus, in two important respects, the accident we had so greatly dreaded proved to be a benefit rather than an injury. It had opened to us a supply of provisions which we could not have exhausted, using it moderately in a month, and it had greatly contributed to our comfort as regards position, we being much more at ease and in infinitely less danger than before. The difficulty, however, of now obtaining water blinded us to all the benefits of the change in our condition that we might be ready to avail ourselves as far as possible of any shower which might fall we took off our shirts to make use of them as we had of the sheets not hoping of course to get more in this way even under the most favorable circumstances than half a gill at a time no signs of a cloud appeared during the day and the agonies of our thirst were nearly intolerable at night, Peters obtained about an hour's disturbed sleep, but my intense sufferings could not permit me to close my eyes for a single moment. August 5th. Today, a gentle breeze springing up carried us through a vast quantity of seaweed, 
among which we were so fortunate as to find eleven small crabs, which afforded us several delicious meals. Their shells being quite soft, we ate them entire, and found that they irritated our thirst far less than the barnacles. Seeing no trace of sharks among the seaweed, we also ventured to bathe, and remained in the water for four or five hours, during which we experienced a very sensible diminution of our thirst, were greatly refreshed, and spent the night somewhat more comfortably than before, both of us snatching a little sleep. August 6. This day we were blessed by a brisk of continual rain, lasting for about noon until after dark. Bitterly did we now regret the loss of our jug and carboy, for in spite of the little means we had of catching the water, we might have filled one, if not both of them. As it was, we contrived to satisfy the cravings of thirst by suffering the shirts to become saturated, and then wringing them so as to let the grateful fluid trickle into our mouths. In this occupation we passed the entire day. August 7. Just at daybreak we both at the same instant descry a tail to the eastward and evidently coming toward us. We hailed the glorious sight with a long, although feeble, shout of rapture and began instantly to make every signal in our power by flaring the shirts in the air leaping as high as our weak condition would permit and even by hallowing with all the strength of our lungs although the vessel could not have been less than fifteen miles distant however she still continued to near our hulk and we felt that if she but held her present course she must eventually come so close as to perceive us in about an hour after we first discovered her we could clearly see the people on her decks. She was a long, low, and rackish-looking topsail schooner, with a black ball in her fore topsail, and had apparently a full crew. We now became alarmed, for we could hardly imagine it possible that she did not observe us, and were apprehensive that she meant to leave us to perish as we were an act of fiendish a barbarity which however incredible it may appear has been repeatedly perpetuated at sea under circumstances very nearly similar and by beings who were regarded as belonging to the human species in this instance however by the mercy of god we were destined to be most happily deceived for presently we were aware of a sudden commotion on the deck of the stranger who immediately afterward ran up a British flag, and holding her wind, bore up directly upon us. In half an hour more we found ourselves in her cabin. She proved to be the Jane Guy of Liverpool, Captain Guy bound on a sealing and trading voyage to the South Seas and Pacific. End of section 13 Recording by Gabby Cowan Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Recording by Gaby Cowan. The works of Edgar Allan Poe. Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. 
Narrative of A. Gordon Pym Chapter 14 The Jane Guy was a fine-looking topsail schooner of a hundred and eighty tons burden. She was unusually sharp in the bows, and on a wind in moderate weather, the fastest sailor I have ever seen. Her qualities, however, as a rough sea boat were not so good, and her draught of water was by far too great for the trade to which she was destined. For this peculiar service, a larger vessel and one of a light proportionate draught is desirable, say a vessel of from three hundred to three hundred and fifty tons. She should be bark rigged and in other respects of a different construction from the usual South Sea ships. It is absolutely necessary that she should be well armed. She should have, say, ten or twelve twelve-pound carronades, and two or three long twelves with brass blunderbusses, and water-tight arm chests for each top. Her anchors and cables should be or far greater strength than is required for any other species of trade, and, above all, her crew should be numerous and efficient, no less, for such a vessel as I have described, than fifty or sixty able-bodied men. The Jane Guy had a crew of thirty-five, all able seamen, besides the captain and mate, but she was not altogether as well armed or otherwise equipped as a navigator acquainted with the difficulties and dangers of the trade could have desired. Captain Guy was a gentleman of great urbanity and manner, and of considerable experience in the southern traffic to which he had devoted a great portion of his life. He was deficient, however, in energy and consequently in that spirit of enterprise which is here so absolutely requisite. He was part owner of the vessel in which he sailed, and was invested with discretionary powers to cruise in the South Seas for any cargo which might come mostly readily to hand. He had on board, as usual, in such voyages, beads, looking-glasses, tinder-works, axes, hatches, saws, adzes, planes, chisels, gouges, gimlets, files, spoke-shaves, rasps, hammers, nails, knives, scissors, razors, needles, thread, crockery-ware, calico, trinkets, and other similar articles. The schooner sailed from Liverpool on the 10th of July, crossed the Tropic of Cancer on the 25th, in longitude 20 degrees west, and reached Sol, one of the Cape Verde Islands, on the 29th, where she took in salt and other necessaries for the voyage. On the 3rd of August she left the Cape Verdes and steered southwest, stretching over toward the coast of Brazil so as to cross the equator between the meridians of 28 and 30 degrees west longitude. This is a course usually taken by vessels bound from Europe 
to the Cape of Good Hope, or by that route to the East Indies. By proceeding thus, they avoid the calms and strong contrary currents which continually prevail on the coast of Guinea, while in the end it is found to be the shortest track, as westerly winds are never wanting afterward by which to reach the Cape. It was Captain Sky's intention to make his first stoppage at Kerguelen's land, I hardly know for what reason. On the day we were picked up, the schooner was off Cape St. Rock, in longitude 31 degrees west, so that, when found, we had drifted probably from north to south, not less than five and twenty degrees. On board the Jane Guy, we were treated with all the kindness our distressed situation demanded. In about a fortnight, during which time we continued steering to the southeast, with gentle breezes and fine weather, both Peters and myself recovered entirely from the effects of our late privation and dreadful sufferings, and we began to remember what had passed rather as a frightful dream from which we had been happily awakened than as events which had taken place in sober and naked reality i have since found that this species of partial oblivion is usually brought about by sudden transition whether from joy to sorrow or from sorrow to joy the degree of forgetfulness being proportioned to the degree of difference in the exchange Thus, in my own case, I now feel it impossible to realize the full extent of the misery which I endured during the days spent upon the hulk. The incidents are remembered, but not the feelings which the incidents elicited at the time of their occurrence. I only know that when they did occur, I then thought human nature could sustain nothing more of agony. We continued our voyage for some weeks without any incidents of greater moment than the occasional meeting with the whaling ships and more frequently with the black or right whale, so called in contradistinction to the sparmacity. These, however, were chiefly found south of the twenty feet parallel. On the sixteenth of September, being in the vicinity of the Cape of Good Hope, the schooner encountered her first gale of any violence since leaving Liverpool. In this neighborhood, but more frequently to the south and east of the promontory, we were to the westward. Navigators have often to contend with storms from the northward, which rage with great fury. They always bring with them a heavy sea, and one of their most dangerous features is the instantaneous chopping round of the wind an occurrence almost certain to take place during the greatest force of the gale. A perfect hurricane will be blowing at one moment from the northward or northeast, and in the next not a breath of wind will be felt in that direction, while from the southwest it will come out all at once with a violence almost inconceivable. A bright spot to the southward is the sure forerunner of the change, and vessels are thus enabled to take the proper precautions. It was about six in the morning when the blow came on with a white squall, 
and, as usual, from the northward. By eight it had increased very much and brought down upon us one of the most tremendous seas I had then ever beheld. Everything had been made as snug as possible, but the schooner labored excessively, and gave evidence of her bad qualities as a sea boat, pitching her forecastle under at every plunge and with the greatest difficulty struggling up from one wave before she was buried in another. Just before sunset, the brightest spot for which we had been on the lookout made its appearance in the southwest, and in an hour afterward we perceived the little headsail we carried flapping listlessly against the mast. In two minutes more, in spite of every preparation, we were hurled on our beam ends, as if by magic, and a perfect wilderness of foam made a clear bridge over us as we lay. The blow from the southwest, however, luckily proved to be nothing more than a squall, and we had the good fortune to ride the vessel without the loss of a spar. A heavy cross sea gave us great trouble for a few hours after this, but toward morning we found ourselves in nearly as good condition as before the gale. Captain Guy considered that he had made an escape little less than miraculous. On the 13th of October, we came in sight of Prince Edward's Island, in latitude 46 degrees, 53 south, longitude 37 degrees, 46 east. Two days afterward, we found ourselves near Possession Island, and presently passed the islands of Crosset in latitude 42 degrees, 59 south, longitude 48 degrees east. On the 18th we made Kerguelen's, or Desolation Island, in the southern Indian Ocean, and came to anchor in Christmas Harbor, having four phantoms of water. This island, or rather group of islands, bears southeast from the Cape of Good Hope, and is distant therefrom nearly eight hundred leagues. It was first discovered in 1772 by the Baron de Kerguelen, or Kerguelen, a Frenchman who, thinking the land to form a portion of an extensive southern continent, carried home information to that effect, which produced much excitement at the time. The government taking the matter up, sent the Baron back in the following year for the purpose of giving his new discovery a critical examination when the mistake was discovered. In 1777, Captain Cook fell in with the same group and gave to the principal one the name of Desolation Island, a title which it certainly well deserves. Upon approaching the land, however, the navigator might be induced to suppose otherwise, as the sides of most of the hills from September to March are clothed with very brilliant verdure. This deceitful appearance is caused by a small plant resembled saxifrage, which is abundant, growing in large patches on a species of crumbling moss. Besides this plant, 
there is scarcely a sign of vegetation on the island if we except for some coarse rank grass near the harbor some lichen and a shrub which bears resemblance to a cabbage shooting into seed and which has a bitter and acrid taste the face of the country is hilly although none of the hills can be called lofty their tops are perpetually covered with the snow there are several harbors of which christmas harbor is the most convenient it is the first to be met with on the northeast side of the island after passing cape francois which forms the northern shore and by its peculiar shape serves to distinguish the harbor its projecting point terminates in a high rock through which is a large hole forming a natural arch the entrance is in latitude 48 degrees 40 south longitude 69 degrees 6 east passing in here good anchorage may be found under the shelter of several small islands which form a sufficient protection from all easterly winds proceeding on eastwardly from this anchorage you come to wasp bay at the head of the harbor this is a small basin completely landlocked into which you can go with four phantoms and find anchorage in from ten to three hard clay bottom a ship might lie here with her best bower ahead all the year round without risk to the westward at the head of wasp bay is a small stream of excellent water easily procured some seal of the fur and hair species are still to be found on kerguelen's island and sea elephants abound the feathered tribes are discovered in great numbers penguins are very plenty and of these there are four different kinds the royal penguin so called from its size and beautiful plumage is the largest the upper part of the body is usually gray sometimes of a lilac tint the under portion of the purest white imaginable the head is of a glossy and most brilliant black the feet also the chief beauty of plumage however consists in two broad stripes of a gold color which pass along from the head to the breast the veil is long and either pink or bright scarlet these birds walk erect with a stately carriage they carry their heads high with their wings drooping like two arms and as their tails project from their body in a line with the legs the resemblance to a human figure is very striking and would be apt to deceive the spectator at a casual glance or in the gloom of the evening the royal penguins which we met with on kerguelen's land were rather larger than a goose the other kinds are the macaroni the jackass and the rookery penguin these are much smaller less beautiful in plumage and different in other respects besides the penguin many other birds are here to be found among which may be mentioned sea hens blue petrels teal dogs 
Port Egmont hens, shags, Cape pigeons, the Nelly, sea swallows, terns, seagulls, Mother Carey's chicken, Mother Carey's geese, or the great petrel, and lastly the albatross. The great petrel is as large as the common albatross and is carnivorous. It is frequently called the breakbones or osprey petrel. They are not at all shy, and when properly cooked, are palatable food. In flying, they sometimes sail very close to the surface of the water, with the wings expanded, without appearing to move them in the least degree, or make any exertion with them whatever. The albatross is one of the largest and fiercest of the South Sea birds. It is of the gull species, and takes its prey on the wing, never coming on land except for the purpose of breeding. Between this bird and the penguin, the most singular friendship exists. Their nests are constructed with great uniformity upon a plan concerted between the two species, that of the albatross being placed in the center of a little square formed by the nest of four penguins. Navigators have agreed in calling an assemblage of such encampments a rookery. These rookeries have been often described, but as my readers may not have all seen these descriptions, and as I shall have occasion hereafter to speak of the penguin and albatross, it will not be amiss to say something here of their mode of building and living. When the season for incubation arrives, the birds assemble in vast numbers, and for some days appear to be deliberating upon the proper course to be pursued. At length, they proceed to action. A level piece of ground is selected of suitable extent, usually comprising three or four acres, and situated as near the sea as possible, being still beyond its reach. The spot is chosen with reference to its evenness of surface, and that is preferred which is the least encumbered with the stones. This matter being arranged, the birds proceed with one accord, and actuated apparently by one mind, to trace out with mathematical accuracy either a square or other parallelogram, as may best suit the nature of the ground and of just sufficient size to accommodate easily all the birds assembled and no more. In this particular, seeming determined upon preventing the access of future stranglers who have not participated in the labor of the encampment, one side of the place thus marked out runs parallel to the water's edge and is left open for ingress or egress. Having defined the limits of the rookery, the colony now begin to clear it of every species of rubbish, picking up stone by stone and carrying them outside of the lines and close by them, so as to form a wall on the three inland sides. Just within this wall a perfectly level and smooth walk is formed, from six to eight feet wide and extending around the encampment, 
thus serving the purpose of a general promenade. The next process is to partition out the whole area into small squares exactly equal in size. This is done by forming narrow paths, very smooth, and crossing each other at right angles throughout the entire extent of the rookery. At each intersection of these paths, the nest of an albatross is constructed, and a penguin's nest in the center of each square. Thus every penguin is surrounded by four albatrosses, and each albatross by a like number of penguins. The penguin's nest consists of a hole in the earth, very shallow, being only just of sufficient depth to keep her single egg from rolling. The albatross is somewhat less simple in her arrangements, erecting a hillock about a foot high and two in diameter. This is made of earth, seaweed and shells. On its summit she builds her nest. The birds take special care never to leave their nest unoccupied for an instant during the period of incubation, or indeed until the young progeny are sufficiently strong to take care of themselves. While the male is absent at sea in search of food, the female remains on duty, and it is only upon the return of her partner that she ventures abroad. The eggs are never left uncovered at all. While one bird leaves the nest, the other nestling in by its side. This precaution is rendered necessary by the thieving propensities prevalent in the rockery, the inhabitants making no scruple to purloin each other eggs at every good opportunity. Although there are some rockeries in which the penguin and albatross are the sole population yet in most of them a variety of oceanic birds are to be met with enjoying all the privileges of citizenship and scattering their nests here and there wherever they can find room never interfering however with the stations of the larger species the appearance of such encampments when seen from a distance is exceedingly singular the whole atmosphere just above the settlement is darkened with the immense number of the albatross, mingled with the smaller tribes, which are continually hovering over it, either going to the ocean or returning home. At the same time, a crowd of penguins are to be observed, some passing to and fro in the narrow alleys, and some marching with a military strut so peculiar to them around the general promenade ground which encircles the rockery. In short survey, it is as we will, nothing can be more astonishing than the spirit of reflection evinced by these feathered beings, and nothing surely can be better calculated to elicit reflection in every well-regulated human intellect. On the morning after our arrival in Christmas Harbor, the chief mate Mr. Patterson took the boats, and, although it was somewhat early in the season, went in search of seal, leaving the captain and a young relation of his on a point of barren land to the westward, they having some business, whose nature I could not ascertain, 
to transact in the interior of the island. Captain Guy took with him a bottle in which was a sealed letter, and made his way from the point of which he was set on shore toward one of the highest peaks in the place. It is probably that his design was to leave the letter on that height for some vessel which he expected to come after him. As soon as we lost sight of him, we proceeded, Peters and myself being in the mate's boat, on our cruise around the coast, looking for seal. In this business, we were occupied about three weeks, examining with great care every nook and corner, not only of Kerguelen's land, but on the several small islands in the vicinity. Our labors, however, were not crowned with any important success. We saw a great many fur seal, but they were exceedingly shy, and with the greatest exertions we could only procure three hundred and fifty skins in all. Sea elephants were abundant, especially on the western coast of the mainland, but of these we killed only twenty, and these with great difficulty. On the smaller islands we discovered a good many of the hair seal, but did not molest them. We returned to the schooner on the 11th, where we found Captain Guy and his nephew, who gave a very bad account of the interior, representing it as one of the most dreary and utterly barren countries in the world. They had remained two nights on the island, owing to some misunderstanding on the part of the second mate in regard to the sending a jolly boat from the schooner to take them off. End of section 14. Recording by Gaby Cowan, Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Recording by Dustin Tuttle. The works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3 by Edgar Allan Poe. The Narrative of A. Gordon Pym. Chapter 15. On the twelfth we made sail from Christmas Harbor, retracing our way to the westward and leaving Marion's Island, one of Crozet's group, on the larboard. We afterward passed Prince Edward's Island, leaving it also on our left, then steering more to the northward, made, in fifteen days, the islands of Tristan d'Acuna, in latitude 37 degrees 8 minutes south, longitude 12 degrees 8 minutes west. This group, now so well known, and which consists of three circular islands, was first discovered by the Portuguese, and was visited afterward by the Dutch in 1643, and by the French in 1767. The three islands together form a triangle, and are distant from each other about 10 miles, there being fine open passages between. The land in all of them is very high, especially in Tristan da Cunha, properly so called. This is the largest of the group, being 15 miles in circumference, and so elevated that it can be seen in clear weather at the distance of 80 or 90 miles. A part of the land from the north rises more than a thousand feet perpendicularly from the sea. A tableland at this height extends back nearly to the center of the island, and from this tableland arises a lofty cone like that of Tenerife. The lower half of this cone is clothed with trees of good size, but the upper region is barren rock, 
usually hidden among the clouds and covered with snow during the greater part of the year. There are no shoals or other dangers about the island, the shores being remarkably bold and the water deep. On the northwestern coast is a bay with a beach of black sand where a landing with boats can be easily effected, provided there be a southerly wind. Plenty of excellent water may here be readily procured. Also, cod and other fish may be taken with hook and line. The next island in point of size and the most westerly of the group is that called the Inaccessible. Its precise situation is 37 degrees, 17 minutes south latitude, longitude 12 degrees, 24 minutes west. It is 7 or 8 miles in circumference and on all sides presents a forbidding and precipitous aspect. Its top is perfectly flat and the whole region is sterile, nothing growing upon it except a few stunted shrubs. Nightingale Island, the smallest and most southerly, is in latitude 37 degrees 26 minutes south, longitude 12 degrees 12 minutes west. Off its southern extremity is a high ledge of rocky islets. A few also of a similar appearance are seen to the northeast. The ground is irregular and sterile, and a deep valley partially separates it. The shores of these islands abound, in the proper season, with sea lions, sea elephants, the hare and fur seal, together with a great variety of oceanic birds. Whales are also plenty in their vicinity. Owing to the ease with which these various animals were here formerly taken, the group has been much visited since its discovery. The Dutch and French frequented it at a very early period. In 1790, Captain Patton of the ship industry of Philadelphia made Tristan da Cunha where he remained seven months from August 1790 to April 1791 for the purpose of collecting sealskins. In this time he gathered no less than 5,600 and says that he would have had no difficulty in loading a large ship with oil in three weeks. Upon his arrival he found no quadrupeds, with the exception of a few wild goats. The island now abounds with all our most valuable domestic animals, which have been introduced by subsequent navigators. I believe it was not long after Captain Patton's visit that Captain Colehound of the American brig Betsy touched at the largest of the islands for the purpose of refreshment. He planted onions, potatoes, cabbages, and a great many other vegetables, an abundance of all which is now to be met with. In 1811, a Captain Haywood in the Nereus visited Tristan. He found there three Americans who were residing upon the island to prepare sealskins and oil. One of these men was named Jonathan Lambert, and he called himself the sovereign of the country. He had cleared and cultivated about 60 acres of land, and turned his attention to raising the coffee plant and sugarcane, with which he had been furnished by the American minister at Rio Janeiro. This settlement, however, was finally abandoned, and in 1817 the islands were taken possession of by the British government, who sent a detachment for that purpose from the Cape of Good Hope. They did not, however, retain them long, but upon the evacuation of the country as a British possession, two or three English families took up their residence there independently of the government. On the 25th of March, 1824, the Berwick Captain Jeffrey, from London to Van Diemen's Land, arrived at the place where they found an Englishman of the name of Glass, formerly a corporal in the British artillery. He claimed to be supreme governor of the islands, and had under his control 21 men and three women. He gave a very favorable account of the salubrity of the climate and of the productiveness of the soil. The population occupied themselves chiefly in collecting sealskins and sea elephant oil, with which they traded to the Cape of Good Hope, 
glass owning a small schooner. At the period of our arrival, the governor was still the resident, but his little community had multiplied, there being 56 persons upon Tristan, besides a smaller settlement of seven on Nightingale Island. We had no difficulty in procuring almost every kind of refreshment which we required. Sheep, hogs, bullocks, rabbits, poultry, goats, fish in great variety, and vegetables were abundant. Having come to anchor close in with the large island and 18 fathoms, we took all we wanted on board very conveniently. Captain Guy also purchased of glass 500 sealskins and some ivory. We remained here a week, during which the prevailing winds were from the northward and westward, and the weather somewhat hazy. On the 5th of November, we made sail to the southward and westward, with the intention of having a thorough search for a group of islands called the Auroras, respecting whose existence a great diversity of opinion has existed. These islands are said to have been discovered as early as 1762, by the commander of the ship Aurora. In 1790, Captain Manuel Doyavido, in the ship Princess, belonging to the Royal Philippine Company, sailed, as he asserts, directly among them. In 1794, the Spanish corvette Atrevida went with the determination of ascertaining their precise situation, and, in a paper published by the Royal Hydrographical Society of Madrid in the year 1809, the following language is used respecting this expedition. The corvette Atrevida practiced, in their immediate vicinity, from the 21st to the 27th of January, all the necessary observations and measured by chronometers the difference of longitude between these islands and the port of Soledad in the Manilas. The islands are three. The islands are three. They are very nearly in the same meridian. The center one is rather low and the other two may be seen at nine leagues distance. The observations made on board the Atrevida gave the following results as the precise situation of each island. The most northern is in latitude 52 degrees, 37 minutes, 24 seconds south, longitude 47 degrees, 43 minutes, 15 seconds west. The middle one in latitude 53 degrees, 2 minutes, 40 seconds south, longitude 47 degrees, 55 minutes, 15 seconds west. And the most southern in latitude 53 degrees, 15 minutes, 22 seconds south, longitude 47 degrees, 57 minutes, 15 seconds west. On the 27th of January, 1820, Captain James Weddell of the British Navy sailed from Staten Land, also in search of the Auroras. He reports that having made the most diligent search and passed not only immediately over the spots indicated by the commander of the Atrevida, but in every direction throughout the vicinity of these spots, he could discover no indication of land. These conflicting statements have induced other navigators to look out for the islands. And strange to say, while some have sailed through every inch of sea where they are supposed to lie without finding them, there have been not a few who declare positively that they have seen them, and even been close in with their shores. It was Captain Guy's intention to make every exertion within his power to settle the question so oddly in dispute. Footnote 3 among the vessels which at various times have professed to meet with the Auroras may be mentioned the ship San Miguel in 1769, the ship Aurora in 1774, the brig Pearl in 1779, and the ship Dolores in 1790. They all agree in giving the mean latitude 53 degrees south. End of footnote. 
We kept on our course between the south and west with variable weather until the 20th of the month, when we found ourselves on the debated ground, being in latitude 53 degrees 15 minutes south, longitude 47 degrees 58 minutes west. That is to say, very nearly upon the spot indicated as the situation of the most southern of the group. Not perceiving any sign of land, we continued to the westward of the parallel of 53 degrees south, as far as the meridian of 50 degrees west. We then stood to the north as far as the parallel of 52 degrees south, where we turned to the eastward and kept our parallel by double altitudes, morning and evening, and meridian altitudes of the planets and moon. Having thus gone eastwardly to the meridian of the western coast of Georgia, we kept that meridian until we were in the latitude from which we set out. We then took diagonal courses throughout the entire extent of sea circumscribed, keeping a lookout constantly at the masthead, and repeating our examination with the greatest care for a period of three weeks, during which the weather was remarkably pleasant and fair, with no haze whatsoever. Of course we were thoroughly satisfied that, whatever islands might have existed in this vicinity at any former period, no vestige of them remained at the present day. Since my return home, I find that the same ground was traced over, with equal care, in 1822, by Captain Johnson of the American schooner Henry, and by Captain Morrill in the American schooner Wasp, in both cases, with the same result as in our own. End of section 15. Recording by Dustin Tuttle.